The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 51. As you're turning there, I want to share with you something very interesting that I realized this week. In 1941, the nation's top music charts were very different than they were today, in our, in our time. Part of the reason that they were very different is that there was a very limited number of singers that ever hit the charts, not like the virtual deluge of music that comes out every day now. That helps to explain this very strange occurrence. In 1941, the number one song that hit the charts was a song called Dolores by Frank Sinatra with music by the Tommy Dorsey Band. Does anybody know that song? Uh, Two, wow. That is just evidence that even the greatest achievements and accomplishments in our era will be quickly forgotten. So that was the number one song, Dolores by Frank Sinatra. The number two song, also Dolores, but this time by Bing Crosby and accompanied by the Mary Max. One of the standout lines in that famous song, or one-time famous song at least, says, I would die to be with my Dolores. Two immediate things stand out about that line that I find bizarre. First of all, both of these men are singing that they would die for this individual woman named Dolores. Interestingly enough, neither one of these men wrote the song, and likely neither one of them even knew this woman if she was indeed a real person. Secondly, they are declaring that they would die to be with her. In other words, that means she must already be dead, otherwise dying would not get them any closer to her. (laughs) Until this week, I had actually never heard this song, and the way that I found it was by doing a lyric search in which the singer was declaring that he or she would die for something or for someone. Shockingly, my search uncovered 6,342 songs in which the singer promised that they would lay their life down for someone or for for something. There's a lot of bands. I was actually shocked to see all these songs, and some of them I recognized. From the, the Backstreet Boys to Prince, from The Eagles to Matchbox 20, from Bonnie Raitt to Miley Cyrus, from John Legend to Burt Bacharach, jazz, country, rap, reggae, rock and roll, pop, funk, every genre under the sun, they all contain songs that boast about their devotion unto death. Call me skeptical, but I don't believe them. I do not think that they are actually interested or willing to die for the things they say they are going to die for. Now, it's a huge thing to say that you would die for someone or for something. It is a massive dedication to declare that you would lay down your life for another. It is the last and the greatest sacrifice that you can make. There is no reversing it. Dying for someone is the most extreme form of devotion that can ever be displayed. In our text this morning, we're going to see the very first martyr who died for the cause of Christ. The Greek word martyr simply means witness. The word was given a new meaning in the early church to represent Christians who stood as a witness to their Messiah. And for their commitment to Christ, they were then put to death. Our text today is really rich. And in fact, I find it to be quite a bittersweet text. It mingles together the sorrow of suffering a brutal death alongside the joy of knowing that nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. 
So please follow along now as I begin reading in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord, we've spoken already this morning about the reality of the persecuted church. We have prayed for the persecuted church in this local body and in this nation and around the world. Lord, I pray that we would have boldness to stand in the midst of pressure like Stephen. I ask that today as we come before your word, you would reveal to us exactly how it is that we are to build this kind of confidence in our Savior. Lord, I ask that today, if there is anyone who is in doubt that Christ is good, that this text would reveal the gracious love of our Savior. And Lord, I pray that as we bow our hearts before your word, you would reveal to us areas where we are not serious about our faith, areas where we have denied the cross, where we have lived in opposition to the King, and you would show us how to repent, and that you would give us conviction and faith to repent. Lord, I pray that you would please help us today to see the example of this man, this righteous individual who died even though he had done nothing wrong. Lord, I pray that in the midst of seeing his sacrifice, we would look even farther to the greater sacrifice of our Savior who was willing to lay down his life for a cause so that he might bring to his Father a bride. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us to see today the great love of Christ as he has purchased himself a bride at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our approach this morning to this text is going to be very loose, actually. We're simply going to walk through the text and have a bit of running commentary as we do, and then I'm going to close us out with four applications and an eye toward the future of the book of Acts. Stephen is only a very short time with us in the book of Acts. We were introduced to Stephen in chapter 6 when he was elected by the congregation to serve as one of the first proto-deacons. Of those listed, Stephen was the first one to be named. Now, this is significant because in the Bible, when there are lists of named, they are never listed arbitrarily. They are always listed in that order for a particular reason. They are not random. 
There is a reason that of the 12 disciples, when they are listed, every time they are listed, regardless of which gospel they are presented in, that list always begins with Peter, the spokesman of the apostles. So the placement of Stephen in this list indicates that he was probably their leader or maybe the spokesman of the group. This notion is also bolstered by the fact that of the seven men that are mentioned, only Stephen is highlighted of having any particular character qualities. In Acts chapter 6, verse 5, he is described as, quote, being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of the men, like Nicanor, they just get their names. Last week, Jim preached about the arrest in the sermon of Stephen. Notice what a powerful servant of the gospel this man was. Scroll down in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Here it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Most of the time, power and grace do not mix. People are, generally speaking, leaning in the direction of one or the other. But Stephen was continuing on the ministry of Christ and the apostles as he worked out his ministry with grace and with power, continuing even to do miracles and miraculous deeds. But not everybody was happy with the ministry of Stephen. Acts chapter 6 verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. The Lord was with Stephen. And the Lord was giving him exactly the right words at exactly the right time. Have you ever been in one of those experiences where you are placed in a position where it's uncomfortable or there is conflict because of your faith and someone pressures you or asks you a question or comes against you or maybe you're just in an evangelistic conversation and somebody asks you a question and you just happen to have the right words at the right moment, the right scripture to share with them. That is the work of the Holy Spirit as he brings to mind what God has taught to us. Jesus foretold that persecution would arise, and he also promised that there would be help for those who encountered trials like that, especially encounters like we see Stephen taking, taking place with Stephen here. Luke chapter 21, verses 12 through 15 says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, this being Jesus speaking. And he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Here's the first time we see that word martyr, witness in the Greek, martyr, show up here in the text. He says what you should do. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. How is it that Stephen was able to stand there in wisdom that they could not withstand or contradict? Because the Holy Spirit was indeed working in him in that moment to give him that powerful word. As you heard last week, those who could not defeat Stephen in public discussion then turned to dirty smear tactics. They accused him of blaspheming the temple and blaspheming the law. And he was then brought before the ruling council. And chapter 6 leaves us with this incredible description of Stephen. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
I don't think that we probably read this rightly. Don't think of Touched by an Angel or a Hallmark movie with some kind of a random humanoid angel character. When people in the Bible encounter an angel, it is fear-inducing. Angels are warriors of heaven, armed with the authority of God himself. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angel killed 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian armed forces in one night. That was the death knell of the Assyrian Empire. If you want to know in history why it is that the Assyrians descended and the Babylonians ascended, it's because their army was decimated as this one night, one angel killed 185,000 of their greatest warriors, and they never recover. And you know who knew that to be true? This council of 70 men in the Sanhedrin, yet it says when they looked at him, they saw his face like that of an angel. This declaration that his face was like an angel is one of the most interesting statements of a person in the Bible. I think the declaration is to say that he had absolute confidence in God and he was in complete control. Although he was on trial, he was not trembling, he was not fearful, he was standing there in full confidence that God was with him. Last week we heard how Stephen preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and he did so to systematically reveal how the Jewish leaders had distorted the view of the law and of the temple and of the presence of God itself. And it turns out that Stephen was actually in the process of that sermon, turning the tables and putting them on trial. He was doing so by indicting them for their sinful rejection of God and, of course, Jesus himself. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Stephen condemns them for doing exactly what their forefathers before them had done. So look again at Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 51 and following. This is when he turns and says to them, You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Most people do not respond well to be call it, being called stiff-necked people. Much more, for a Jew to be called uncircumcised in heart was to say that they did not actually belong to the people of God at all. Some of the final words of Moses are found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. In short, if you have not been circumcised in heart, which means that God performs a change in your heart, then you're not going to love God and you're not going to live. Clearly the opposite of life is death, but the life and death being referenced here are not temporary or earthly life and death. They are the eternal kinds of life and death. Therefore, Stephen has just told these 70 religious rulers and their clerks that they are not only not listening to Jesus, they are also outside the kingdom of God, they don't love God, and they are on their way to hell. This statement is a powerful one. Stephen then turns up the heat even more when he announces that they are murderers who descended from murderers. You are murderers because you are just like your fathers who are murderers, which was why they crucified the true Messiah. As if he needed a final knockout punch, he then closes his statement by making it clear they do not keep the law. 
Please understand, their entire basis for being in their position of authority, of authority was that they declared that they kept the law better than other people. That is why they thought they had the right to be in charge. So when Stephen goes after them and declares that they are not righteous and they have not followed the law, he is actually delegitimizing their position of authority entirely. These people prided themselves on being the most righteous and holy people in the land, but that was all superficial And Stephen went after the wall of their self-righteousness with a sledgehammer of truth. And this was when they should have agreed with Stephen and they should have fallen on their face and they should have sought forgiveness from God. But instead we see a far darker turn. In verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. You have to be pretty angry to grind your teeth. I think that this is one of the most disturbing sounds that people can make. I actually hate the sound of grinding teeth. You know, the, the nails on a chalkboard sound, it's how that is, it's chill inducing. The same thing happens to me when people grind their teeth. It just, ah, can you imagine 70 men gnashing their teeth at the same time? But not just gnashing them, it says gnashing them at him. These are declarations of hatred toward him. One biblical scholar named David Peterson explains, in the Old Testament, gnashing the teeth is a sign of hostility and of rage, often by the wicked against the righteous. Let me give you a few Old Testament examples of exactly what he's saying here. Psalm chapter 35, verse 16 says, Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. Skip forward two chapters, Psalm 37, 12. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. It's an act of hatred and animosity. Lamentations 2.16, let me give you the background here. Lamentations is a book by Jeremiah where he is lamenting as he's walking through the destroyed city of Jerusalem and seeing its ruins on the ground. So when he says her here, he's referencing her, the city of Jerusalem. He says, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this day we longed for, now we have seen it. We see it. In other words, all the enemies of Jerusalem are looking and they are gnashing their teeth at this city, which represented God himself in some senses. In the New Testament, there are only eight times outside of our text this morning that gnashing of teeth or grinding of teeth is mentioned. Every last one of those eight is spoken of by Jesus and all of them are references to what will happen in hell. Seven times in Matthew and once in the book of Luke, Jesus explains that hell will be populated by people who are weeping and who are gnashing their teeth. Please understand the definition of gnashing their teeth, why they are doing it, has not changed. There are millions of legitimate reasons why those who are in hell will be weeping, but there is just one reason reason that they will be gnashing their teeth. It is a symbolic way for Jesus to reveal that people who are in hell will continue to forever curse God and forever to reject him. They will always be filled with hostility and rage against the Lord. They're not going to look back with repentance on what they had done. They will continue hard set in their animosity against God. Psalm chapter two asks the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? We see that what the Sanhedrin are doing here What they are doing is directed at Stephen, but honestly, it's past him. It's directed beyond him. It's directed to the one that Stephen serves. 
They are angry because Stephen is declaring Jesus is the Messiah. They are gnashing their teeth at God himself. They refused for the Lord of glory to rule over them. So what we are seeing here is just a very honest look at the heart of every unbeliever. This moment was a laying bare of the stark reality of total depravity. But even when these Pharisees and Sadducees were fuming with anger, we see that Stephen was not seeing their rage. Instead, he was getting a preview of what would shortly come to pass. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Instead of feeling the mounting pressure of the angry mob, Stephen experienced the smile of Jesus awaiting him with open arms. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this moment. He says, I never read this great chapter without always being struck by this contrast. Stephen went through this history and made his analysis of it, and it was one that was full of unhappiness and disappointment. How sad the record of the children of Israel is. What a miserable people these members of the Sanhedrin were. Then suddenly, it's like passing out of a cloud and a storm into the most glorious sunshine. There is a beam of light and everything is transfigured and transformed. You look at Stephen and there you see a Christian in contradistinction to the non-Christian and you are amazed at the difference. Stephen was standing inside a building. Yet, he was not seeing the ceiling. He was looking up, and he was seeing the Lord as if he was standing right above him. And the Sanhedrin seemed to recognize that Stephen is not intimidated by them. And the fact that Stephen tells them that Jesus is alive at the right hand of the Father indicates at least three things to them. First, it proves that their efforts to kill Jesus have ultimately failed for he is alive at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, it proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is at the right hand of the Father, meaning that he is in the position of divine favor. And thirdly, it proves that they have made themselves enemies of God by opposing Christ and his kingdom. But due to their hardness of heart, they still do not repent. Instead, we see their rebellion only intensify in verse 57 as they take out their anger against God's messenger. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They're not willing to listen to him. They're not willing to hear the message of the gospel proclaimed to them. They want nothing to do with these words of life. And instead of hearing the word of life, they stop up their ears. They literally plug them. Can you imagine these 70 men getting up out of their chairs with their fingers in their ears, running like madmen, like a mob at this individual who is standing there boldly looking into heaven? This man stands no threat to them, yet they pick him by the arms and they drag him out of the city and they throw him onto the ground and they stone him to death. Being stoned is a horrific way to die. It is not a gentle way to go. Large stones are literally thrown at a person, crushing bones and crushing vital organs. Yet when you read this account of the murder, the martyrdom of Stephen, 
Luke writes the account with no gruesome detail. In fact, as we read it, it's almost beautiful in the way that he is perceiving the passing of Stephen from this life into the next. He continues and says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In order to examine these final words, I would like to press them home with four application points. Application one, you cannot be a witness to something you have not witnessed. To be a martyr literally means that you're a witness. It means that you have seen something and you are now standing and declaring and giving testimony to that truth. Imagine that you're in a courtroom and a witness is called to the stand and the witness is then being asked questions and then all of a sudden it switches and, and you have the other person come to cross-examine this lawyer whose job it is to discredit them. And he says, did you see this crime being committed? And he says, oh, no, you know, no, but I heard about it. He says, okay, well, let me clarify that. Did you actually hear it? Did you hear the crime taking place? No, 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 no. But I have friends who have overheard it maybe and they shared with me. So let me get this straight. You are telling me that you were not there, you were not present, you did not see it, you did not hear it, you actually have no firsthand experience of this crime. That is correct. Your Honor, I make a motion that we dismiss his, his counsel as nothing but hearsay. And then this counsel would be dismissed in a court of law. You cannot bring hearsay in as actual testimony. Likewise, you cannot be a witness to Christ if you don't know Christ. To those in the room that have no saving relationship with the Lord, you cannot be a witness to the king unless you have actually encountered his grace and his mercy over your life. You cannot live for the Lord unless you have been saved by him. Let me share with you what that means. The Bible teaches that you are not only astray, not only running away and getting lost, you are also what the Bible calls an enemy of God. Just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees in this group of 70 men who rejected Stephen's message, The Bible puts you in that same category with them. You are an enemy stopping your ears from hearing the message of God. The Bible says that you have rejected his authority, that you want nothing to do with his rule or reign, and that you have fallen short of his glory. What that means is you will rightly receive the eternal punishment that we spoke about moments ago, where you will experience forever the torment of hell, where you will experience nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is all bad news. But there is good news. The Bible uses the word gospel, which just means good news, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who would live a perfect life, unlike you or me. A son who would not only live sinlessly, but he would die a death that he did not deserve, and he would make an unjust, unfair trade where he takes all of our sin on himself, and gives us all of his righteousness. That is what the Bible teaches about the good news. And if you are here and you have not yet been a witness to that grace, you can, you can be in the family of God if you will only believe in Jesus Christ, place your trust in that death at the cross, believe that his blood covers your sins, and you will be saved. And the great news is that he is not in the grave today. As we see in our text, he is at the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns to be our Savior forever. That is the good news, and you must witness him in his fullness and experience that grace before you can ever hope to do any of the other things that I will share with you today. Application number two. 
You cannot die for someone that you won't live for. Christians, it is no coincidence that Stephen was able to stand in the midst of trial, even unto death. In the little things that we have learned about him in these two chapters, we know that Stephen was a man who loved the Lord and who loved the word. He was called a man filled with grace and power before this event ever took place. We know that he also preached the word. He defended the gospel. When he was speaking with those people out there and he was declaring these truths and they were trying to fight him, he was filled with power and with wisdom. And then when he stands before the Sanhedrin, we see him give the longest sermon in the book of Acts, not preparing at all, just going and standing and preaching the good news from the Old Testament. Yes, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, but those things also were already in his mind, which indicates to us that he knew the word of God. He had studied where to find Christ in the Bible. His entire sermon was a summary of the whole of the Old Testament. Who of us could at a moment's notice stand and give that kind of account? Dying for Jesus is not merely an event that happened to Stephen at the end of his life. He had been laying down his life for others on a consistent basis. He had made himself one of the servants for the church. Remember, the word deacon literally means servant. He laid down his life for the body as he served them, and he evangelized the lost with great zeal. Why? Because he loved his Savior and because he loved their souls. He is a picture of what Jesus commands us to do in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Remember these words of Christ? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is not a just at the end of your life experience. This is a daily working. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. Stephen picked up his cross at the end of his life because he picked up his cross daily. I don't want to say that it made it easy for him to stand up to the Sanhedrin. Maybe it did. I don't know. But I do think it was natural for him at this point because this was the constant pattern of his life. If you cannot stand unashamed for Jesus daily, picking up your cross every morning and carrying it out throughout your job and throughout your school and throughout your family life, then you're not going to pick up your cross if a moment like this comes to pass. You will not carry your cross when the cost becomes much higher. So I encourage you, pick up your cross daily and follow him. Application number three, you cannot lose when the world fights against you. Everything that happened to Stephen in this chapter is unjust. It's unfair. This man has done nothing wrong. He has not harmed these people. He is standing there disputing them. He is disagreeing with them. But he has done nothing but speak truth. There is no manner in which this can be viewed as good from any earthly sense. But in God's economy, even plans like this of the Lord, plans that are of the most extreme nature, are for our good and for his glory. Let me tell you something. I promise you, Stephen is not standing up there in heaven thinking, you know what, I just can't stand the fact that that's how I went out. I I, I am so frustrated that I didn't get just a couple more years down there. No, Stephen is not disappointed in heaven. The world can't take anything from you. 
You were promised that you're going to have hard days, but in Christ you are also promised you will never again have a bad day. And this is particularly true because death has lost its sting. We no longer have anything to fear. There is no guilt in life, but also no fear in death. Not, not life nor death can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I love the hymn by Henry Light called Abide With Me. Uh, for about 10 years now, uh, it doesn't matter whenever I get a new phone, for some reason there's like a handful of six songs that transfer to every new iDevice, and I, no matter what I do, I can't change that or remove them. They're always there, and the first one is this song, Abide With Me, and for some reason, whenever I plug in my phone in my car, it always automatically plays this song every time for the last six years at least, probably closer to 10, and I love this song. This hymn by Henry Light reminds us, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight. Tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting death? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still. Abide with me. I can't lose if Christ is with me. Even if death is my foe, I will be victorious. Or what about the Sovereign Grace song that reminds us that it is not death to die? It says, it is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. And those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. This is at the core of what the New Testament teaches us. This is the reality for a believer. We are new. This is not our home. We are aliens and strangers in this world. We have a domicile that is located outside of this realm and in the heavenlies. So if God is for you, literally nobody can be against you. They will try, they will fight, but even if every single individual and every single animal and every single molecule in this universe decided to stack its forces and fight against God, they would still lose, and he is on your side. Even if you end up like Stephen, lifeless on the ground, in a pool of your own blood, they can't take anything from you. I love the Jim Elliot quote, a man who also died for the faith, when he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Knowing these truths will help you live fearlessly in the face of mounting pressures. Be still, my soul. The Lord is at my side. I don't want to pretend that the world is an easy place. It's not. I don't want to try to sneak one by you here by saying that it's going to be easy for you to live for Christ in this world. It's not. There will be many hard days. I doubt that anybody in this room is going to experience the kind of death that Stephen did. I, I doubt that any in this room will have the opportunity to be martyred for Christ, although that is possible, who knows. But what I do want to share with you is the reality that in the midst of these mounting pressures and trials, these changes that are occurring rapidly in our culture and in our country, where there is great anger against the church and against Christ, that is no longer hidden or or kind of covered up by fancy language. It is just out in the open. Know that Christ is on your side. And the world cannot take anything from you. Let's move now to application number four. You can only forgive in so much as you have been forgiven. Notice that Stephen continued to show his Christ-likeness, even as he is moments away from his final breath. 
He does so by praying for forgiveness of those who were literally killing him at that very moment. How often do we pray for those who are mistreating us? How often do we actually follow after what we are told to do in the Beatitudes, to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us? Derek Thomas describes the situation this way. He says, The Sanhedrin were shouting at Stephen and throwing stones at him. Meanwhile, Stephen was crying out that his accusers might be forgiven. They were full of the spirit of enmity. but Stephen was full of the spirit of holiness. The only way that you can display this kind of forgiveness is if you recognize that your sins against the Lord are even greater than the sin that was done against you. That is even true in the case of Stephen. For it is one thing to kill another individual who is a created being. It is another thing to raise your hand in your life against the king of the universe and unto death pursue him, which is what the Bible teaches all of us have done. Every last one of us is guilty of, of rejecting and rebelling against the king and the sovereign of the universe. That sin is greater than anything that can be committed against us. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. So true disciples love their enemies and do good to those who persecute them. And that is a distinctly Christian value because it requires that you have first experienced forgiveness. So see that you have been forgiven and then forgive others. Jesus goes so far as to explain that those who cannot forgive others give evidence that they themselves have not actually been saved at all. So search your heart and recognize that the debt has been paid on your behalf and then have a heart of forgiveness towards others. I want you to notice one quick thing about this. Stephen does not forgive them. He does not actually forgive them. Forgiveness requires that they would recognize their sin. Rather, he prays that God would forgive them. And I also want you to consider for a moment that God does answer this prayer because there is a man standing there holding the coats of those who were throwing stones. And that man, this self-righteous Pharisee, He would become the scourge of the church. This man would pursue Christians and seek after them until they were supposed to be completely eradicated. He was getting papers so that he might go to foreign cities so that he might execute them. But the Lord answered Stephen's prayer and brought at least one of those men who was standing there stoning him into the kingdom of heaven. Paul became the most influential Christian who has ever lived. This man who stood there approvingly at the death of Stephen, who overheard this prayer, had no idea Stephen was actually praying effectually for his own soul. So from this point forward in the book of Acts, and the rest of the New Testament for that matter, it's actually going to move its attention away from Jerusalem. So far, in the first seven chapters of Acts, everything has been intentionally focused in on this one city. All of the people who are are in these passages are spoken about in this city. Yet, what we are going to see taking place is that from this point on, the eyes of the gospel writers, or this gospel writer, Luke, who is giving us now this book of Acts, and the bent of all of those who are writing the rest of the New Testament are not focused on Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And they are building up the kingdom of God globally so that God's kingdom might advance. This historic event, this martyrdom of Stephen, proved to be the greatest cause for stimulating growth in the church up to this point in the book of Acts, and maybe in the history of the church. That is why Tertullian would eventually write that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as we will see next week, this event was certainly evil. No one can doubt that it was bad what these people did, but it was also part of God's plan to build his kingdom by spreading people out from Jerusalem. 
Do you remember the promise that Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? That you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the outer parts of the earth. What do we see taking place next Sunday? Chapter 8, verse 1. They are now moving, and it declares that they are moving from Jerusalem out into Judea and Samaria and even the outer parts of the world. So as we see next week, God was actually using this event, even though it is horrific in nature, to build his kingdom in a very important and significant and strategic way. Last word, and we'll close. Martyrdom is still common today. This is not something that is gone from the face of the earth. There are more people that have been killed in the last 100 years for their faith than there was the first 1,900 years combined. So I strongly encourage you to regularly read about and pray for the persecuted church around the world. That will, not only will that give you great thankfulness for the peace and comfort that we have here and freedom of religion that we have here, but it will also help you to see that the kingdom of God is still fighting to advance globally. The best materials out there are probably from Voice of the Martyrs, but there are other things that you can find that are very beneficial in learning about the martyrs. But do not take for granted the freedom that we have to worship. So let's move forward, church, faithful to carry, out, carry our crosses as aliens and strangers in this world, even unto death. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is an amazing thing that Stephen would die for the sake of Christ. But we recognize that that is only a reactionary response, that it is a reflex from seeing that Christ had died for him. I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you in a saving way, that today would be their moment of salvation, where you would break through the pride that we have seen displayed in this passage in the heart of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that they would recognize that same wall of pride exists in their own heart, and that they are living in self-righteousness. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in this room who is not currently saved, that today would be a time when you would open their eyes to the truth, you would unstop their ears, you would show them the reality of Christ the Savior, and that they would believe. And Lord, I pray for all of those in the room who do know you and who have lived for you to this point in their life. I ask, Lord, that you would give them strength, like you gave Stephen, that they would be able to stand firmly in the power of the Holy Spirit and with wisdom and with grace, that they might be able to live in this challenging world without compromise. And I pray that whenever there is persecution that arises, whenever there is discomfort that comes forth from our confession of faith, that they would stand firm and boldly, that they would not waver, that they would have, like Stephen, the face of an angel, with full confidence that you are at our side. Lord, I pray for all of those in the room who are currently hearing this word and asking themselves, how in the world could I stand in that kind of pressure? Give them a strong faith. Give us that kind of power and authority, recognizing that we stand firmly on the solid rock of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.